Hello, I'm here to read you a story. It's a book by Roger Boyd called The Schizophrenic Society Lost in a Make-Believe World While We Destroy the Real One. The table of contents has a preface, introduction, from nurturing mother to that which must be controlled. Economic growth will fix everything. The rich and the gilded cage. The creation of society's shared hallucinations. Celebrating mass murder-suicide. Endless layers of delusion. Normal is the exception. Linear thinking versus bounded resilience. The new high priests, economists, industrial agriculture, diminishing returns and inertia, hegemonic resistance to change, backward to the future, neo-feudalism and animal farm, forward to the future, references, endnotes, and copyright. So here's the preface. I started on a journey that has led to this book at least a decade ago when the lack of action on climate change prompted me to seek an understanding of the issues involved. To my surprise, I found that climate change was but one of the many symptoms of one larger underlying problem. The problem was, and still is, the unlimited exponential growth of humanity's demands upon a finite planet. With many of the other symptoms becoming more and more apparent by the day, such as ecological destruction and resource depletion, why is it that humanity seems to be unable to step off its suicidal path of continual growth? This question led me through many twists and turns through history, sociology, geophysics, politics, psychology, economics, philosophy, complexity theory, anthropology, and many other disciplines. The resulting story is one that encompasses both human and societal shortcomings when dealing with the nature of the challenges that face us and the exacerbations of these failings by those that most benefit from the current situation. To expect the rich and powerful to accept changes that may very well remove their riches and power is a naivete that much writing in this film field unfortunately suffers from. I have strived to make this book relatively short and as accessible as possible from the for the general reader while still keeping the integrity of the information and arguments put forth. This would have been impossible without the great help of my best friend and editor, um, Kiko Gutierrez, who managed to force much clarity and simplicity into the text while at the same time fixing my awful grammar. I hope that this book allows others to take the journey that I myself have undertaken to understand the basis of our predicament, the reality of the difficulties in changing society's path, and the urgency with which such changes are required. Without them, the wonders of our modern society may be but a memory within a few decades. Roger Boyd, September 2014. Introduction. Human civilization stands at a crossroads. Either it continues its current path of business as usual and faces escalating crises on its journey to destruction, or it fundamentally reassesses its relationship with its environment and accepts limits upon how much it can safely take from the earth each year. The underlying crisis that humanity faces is the unsustainability of the exponential growth of its claims upon the earth. Climate change, peak cheap energy, and ecological destruction are all symptoms of this exponential growth. 
Humanity, humanity currently consumes the Earth's renewable resources 50% faster than can be replenished. Within 20 years, humanity's consumption will require the product of two Earths. Industrialized societies have only been able to continue with such destructive and suicidal ways through the development of delusional beliefs, manufactured hallucinations that hide reality behind the cloak of an imaginary world, and deeply flawed logic mistaken for intellectual genius. Confronted with an individual showing such symptoms, a psychiatrist would quickly recognize the manifestations of a major mental illness, schizophrenia. Unless the elites, who are both the guardians and major beneficiaries of the status quo, are forced into a harsh re-engagement with reality, a new dark age will be our destiny. The only question will be how long the incredibly complex and destructive societies that have been constructed can be held together. These societies function only through the plunder of the Earth's ecosystems, its mineral resources, and its fossil fuels, which represent many millions of years of ancient sunlight. This is not just an issue of cap with capitalism, the removal of which will not change the path to destruction. The belief that the Earth's sole purpose is for the benefit of the human race and that humanity, through its cleverness, can overcome any limitation goes back many thousands of years. The genesis of such mistaken beliefs occurred with the extensive use of agriculture and animal husbandry, which set humans apart from the natural world. Anthropologists have noted that the surviving hunter-gatherer communities tend to see themselves as part of nature, while agricultural and animal husbandry societies see themselves as more civilized entities set apart from the wild nature, upon which they have gained some level of control. Unfortunately, agriculture and animal husbandry fostered growing populations which ate up any food sur surpluses. In addition, elites sprang up that controlled the food produced and furthered their own wealth and power. The only way forward for such societies was expansion. The sheer weight of numbers, along with the ability to feed an army of soldiers, made these societies extremely successful in their perpetual search for more land, to feed their increasing numbers and the ever-expanding demands of the elite. The surrounding hunter-gatherer groups either moved away or were defeated, resulting in, in the unsustainable expanding at the expense of the sustainable. Over time, many complex societies grew and many collapsed, but the agriculturalists continued their growth at the expense of the hunter-gatherers, who to this day are seen overwhelmingly as savages that need to be integrated or eradicated in the name of religion or progress. The religion of the complex societies came to reflect a human-centric view that both gave humanity dominion over the earth and provided the rationale for the destruction of those heretics that would not accept the official, true religion. As civilizations rose and fell, the victorious took the vanquished as slaves and developed beliefs that legitimized the use of other human beings as nothing more than furniture that breathed. The elites of those societies understood that more than just brute force could be used to control the masses that toiled to provide their wealth and power. Therefore, bureaucracy and religion were also brought to bear as efficient controls. Of course, where these failed, there were always horrific punishments to deter repeat attempts. 
There were many such challenges from the masses, but the great threats to the rulers of such societies tended to come from within their own elite, from the elites of other competing societies, climactic change, and the slow degradation of the soils essential to agriculture. From the 15th century onwards, the European nations solved the latter problem through the taking of vast new lands in the Americas and Oceania. These provided nitrogen to replenish Europe's exhausted soils, first from the mining of millennia bird droppings on Pacific islands, and then from larger mineral deposits. These new lands also provided food and a destination for surplus populations. They were depopulated primarily through native exposure to infectious European diseases, with the surviving population dealt with through subjugation and slaughter that has continued to the present day. A new living space was created, cleared of its previous inhabitants. The subjugation of Africa was slower due to the inhospitableness of the climate and local infectious diseases to Europeans. Resistance from established advanced civilizations also slowed the European advance in the Far East. Once again, the taking of lands from others was reinforced as a successful strategy for overcoming ecological limits and shown to be the only way to survive as a society in the long run. Either take or be taken. The pillagers of the earth were rewarded while the conservationists were driven out, subjugated, or slaughtered. This struggle continued through time, as those that most intensively abused the environment destroyed many others before succumbing to ecological and social limits. In a dysfunctional Darwinian process, the ecological sustainable groups were defeated by the short-term advantages bestowed by unsustainable practices. Still, even at this point in history, humanity lived well within what the earth could provide. The cycle of societal growth and collapse would have continued over many thousands of years until possibly the next ice age. Complex human civilizations owe their existence to the luck of being within the long summer of the Holocene interglacial period, when the ice sheets retreated towards the poles opening the huge land expanses of the northern hemisphere. The successful use of fossil fuels, first coal, then oil and natural gas, provided phenomenally large amounts of cheap energy that allowed human civilization to leap over the limits of agriculture. The ruling societal beliefs attribute the extraordinary technological advances of the past two centuries to applied human ingenuity. This technology was used to harness the phenomenal amounts of concentrated energy provided by fossil fuels, without which the steam engine would not have been much use. Similarly, without a liquid energy source, the internal combustion engine would have remained on the drawing board, like the sketches of flying machines and submarines, submarines by da Vinci. The miracles created on the back of fossil fuels, which we now take for granted, expanded the belief in humanity's eternal ability to overcome natural limitations. The increasing size and complexity of society, which accelerated with the use of fossil fuels, separated the individual from any direct involvement in important events and replaced first-hand experience with mediated recollections and interpretations of those experiences, first through the pronouncements of church and state, next through the written word and mass industrialized schooling, and then radio, films, and television. 
As agriculture become mechanized, concentrating the population of the rich and developing countries into urban centers, even the firsthand experience of the natural world has diminished. Instead, the average citizen exists in a man-made environment, dependent on others to construct representations of the reality outside their artificial world. These constructed hallucinations have become a new means of control, where the very conceptual structure upon which decisions are made is manipulated by the steady stream of manufactured experiences that the media and other institutions provide, both through the selection of events that are deemed important and the interpretation of the larger meanings of those events. Reality can be constructed and manipulated. This quote-unquote matrix may not be as physically invasive as depicted in the movie, The Matrix 1999, but is still extremely effective in molding the thought processes and beliefs of individuals in modern societies. Given that these messages are predominantly controlled by societal elites, who are both the most indoctrinated in the ruling beliefs and the greatest beneficiaries of it, they will tend to reflect and reinforce the validity of such concepts as exponential growth and the limitless possibilities of human ingenuity. The group hallucinations provided by the media and other institutions of socialization will then reflect this invented reality, obscuring the reality of our ecological destructiveness. The mass media consists overwhelmingly of private corporations reliant upon advertising revenue for their continued success, and therefore upsetting and challenging content will tend to be rejected, watered down, or juxtaposed with positive messages. The continuation of the consumer society is central to economic growth. The best consumers will be those that are unable to connect their consumption habits to the destruction or diminution of the environment upon which they and their offspring are dependent. The short-term imperatives of organizational success and profit overwhelm this long-term, longer-term considerations of societal survival. This situation has been exacerbated by the consolidation of the media into a small number of huge corporations, along with the takeover of media organizations by industries tied to continuing economic growth and fossil fuel usage. The arrival of the internet promised access to many new media sources, but has become just as colonized by concentrated private interests, private, private entities that push illusions of happiness through consumption, never-ending growth, and human genius conquering all challenges. The flawed and twisted logic propagated through the religious fundamentalism still holds sway in many parts of the world and even in some of the most developed countries. To some of these believers, only God can affect large-scale changes and thus to even state that climate change is created by humans can be considered heresy. Some further believe that the destruction of the Earth's ecology is not important, as God will rescue the believers by beaming them up to heaven in the rapture. For others in society, human technology, endless progress, and economics are the new holy trinity. In the latter, the belief is that the economy can exist separate from society, and even the earth. With the invisible hand, quote-unquote, of the market, the new God. Only through its unfettered actions can happiness and prosperity be achieved, and our miraculous science and technology replace, quote-unquote, natural capital with human-created capital. Any limits can be overcome because humanity will always find a way to substitute for depleted resources and destroyed ecosystems. 
As with the previous religions, many proponents are believers, but some at least understand that substantial flaws exist. While valuing the status and financial positions that the outward display of belief provides, it is important not to confuse the masses by giving them inconvenient facts and logics. At facts and logic, as with previous religions, the new ones provide a complex conceptual cover for reality. Healthily funded by the elites that benefit most from the status quo, and are most brainwashed by it, the very nature and functioning of complex modern human societies relies upon ground-level schizophrenia. We have to believe that we are masters of our collective destiny; that our human genius and dexterity will be able to overcome whatever challenges we face, whether externally generated or consequences of our past cleverness. That the Earth is simply a rebellious playground. Which needs to be controlled and reminded now and again that it is there for our benefit only. We see order in the working of higher powers, whether they be gods or the invisible hand of the economics religion, where there is really only chance and randomness. We assume predictability and slow rates of change in natural environments that have shown the ability to change rapidly. We retreat from the surrounding truths of our suicidal path into the comforting arms of denial and illogical thinking. Just like small children, we believe that if we avert our gaze from something, it cannot harm us. Larger and more complex our societies become, the greater harm they can they do to our only home, the Earth, and the more schizophrenic they must be to keep traveling around this destructive path. Humanity hurls towards its own extinction. While its citizens remain blissfully wound up in their own delusions and hallucinations, there is no empathy for the pain, suffering, and extinction caused to other species by the everyday workings of modern human society. For the individual raised in such societies, these things appear normal, while from the outside they appear deranged, sadistic, and suicidal. For human society to continue to flourish, a significant portion of the population must step outside of the quote-unquote matrix. View the true reality of our situation and act upon that knowledge. To be the outsider and "quote unquote" speak truth to power is never a comfortable place to be. But unless more people take this path, humanity will continue its journey to resource depletion and ecological disaster. Chapter two: From nurturing mother to that which must be controlled. Before agriculture, that's the subheading. For the majority of humanity's time on this earth, individuals have lived in small groups of hunter-gatherers. These groups lived in nature, and although they could use such things as fire and selective plant removal to alter nature's path, they mostly reacted to and fitted within whatever is provided. Other sentient creatures were not viewed as either wild animals or food factories, but as non-human persons that deserved respect and could make things difficult for humans if they were not respected. In many cases, common ancestry between humans and animals, or the ability of the individuals to switch between human and animal forms, was believed in. In addition, even inanimate objects such as physical locations, rock formations, and natural forces such as the wind were imbued with spiritual and cultural importance. Oops, I accidentally. Animism, the belief that non-human entities have souls, even inanimate ones, was the basis of spiritual life. The small and dwindling numbers of existing indigenous hunter-gatherer groups around the world have kept such beliefs alive. In such human groups, 
Um, it says, in such human groups, see themselves... I think it's a typo, but such human groups see themselves as just another sentient animal among many, and at the mercy of the winds of their nurturing earth and its ecosystems. The beliefs in a shared ancestry between animals and humans mirror the modern theories of evolution. The view that other animals are sentient beings mirrors modern science, which continues to explore the sentience of many Animals that the industrial food industry treats appallingly, such as pigs and cattle. Only by not integrating such knowledge into their beliefs can modern industrial societies continue this treatment of such animals in factory farms or the slaughter of, a highly, of highly sentient whales and dolphins. These practice are, practices are kept far away from the majority of citizens because being out of sight, out of mind, allows the population to avoid being discomforted by the reality of how their meat and other animal products are produced. The Yupik Eskimo of Alaska view animals as non-human persons. The relationship between animals and humans is central to their worldview. This relationship is seen as one of reciprocity, with the animals giving themselves to the hunters who have respect for them as persons in their own right. The similarities rather than the differences between humans and animals are emphasized. Both are believed to have immortal souls, which participate in an endless cycle of birth, death, and rebirth. They are seen as sharing self-awareness and the ability to control their own destiny. In such a worldview, humans are just one group within a much larger group of animals, which are also persons. The Heisla and the Henax. Siala, people of Northwest British Columbia, share such a relationship with animals, as shown in their legend of the hunter. This story, that's a, in quotes, and this story tells the tells of a hunter shown the personhood of animals by a mountain goat who had taken human form. The hunter was shown many other animals that had taken human form, reinforcing the equality between human and non-human. The Gwich'in indigenous population of northern Canada and Alaska also share the same respect for animals as persons and the ability of humans and non-humans to switch places. For example, Gwich'in legends have, have it that caribou took human form before deciding to turn back into caribou and that a human turned into a caribou for a year. The need to respect animals so that they will give themselves up to the hunter is a concept shared across indigenous groups, and there are a myriad of ways in which such respect is to be given. In the case of the Gwich'in and the caribou, the many rules of respect include the imperatives that none of the killed animals must be wasted, that the wounded animal must never be left to die, and that no one must step in the killed animal's blood. The indigenous view of nature as something of which they are but a small part of is much closer to the behavior that modern societies will need to practice if they are to remain visible. Unfortunately, with the passing of each day, the remaining independent hunter-gatherer societies are increasingly displaced and integrated into modern culture and practices. Much of this integration has been a conscious and brutal policy of modern governments, as with the Canadian residential schools. From the 1870s to 1996, about 150,000 First Nation, Inuit, and Matisse children 
were removed from their families and placed in an educational system designed to eradicate their indigenous identity, language, and culture so that they could become modern citizens. In Australia, mixed-race indigenous children were removed and placed with white families supposedly to help them assimilate into the modern world. In reality, most were used as cheap labor, many were abused, and all of them were removed from their culture and history. Such practices are still in existence. Across the globe, indigenous communities are being displaced from land deemed valuable by modern societies, with those that resist being in danger of imprisonment and murder. Such is the case in the Amazon rainforest, Central America, Malaysia, and the Sudan. Such instances continue the displacement of the sustainable by the unsustainable that has continued over the millennia since agriculture allowed for settled and growing communities. The next subheading is agriculture. About 10,000 years ago, the Neolithic Revolution saw the development of agriculture. As agricultural communities became established and advanced, the cost of the hunter-gatherers, a growing percentage of humanity, took a very different view of nature and other animals. Animals either became tamed property that could signify wealth and importance or were quote-unquote wild and to be feared and exterminated if possible where they interfered with human settlements, harvests, and animal husbandry. The plants which humans domesticated gained at the expense of others as as humanity cleared greater areas to feed their growing population. A fundamentally different relationship with nature was established, culminating in the religions that gave central importance to humanity as the benefactors of the God-created earth. Humanity started a process of dissociation, disconnection, and alienation from the earth's ecosystems of which it was an integral part. Um... The relationship between humans and animals seem to be largely affected by how they interact. In hunter-gatherer societies where humans interact with wild animals, non-humans are seen as having a level of equality with humans. As humans gain more control of their environment through herding and agriculture, their worldview seems to involve a separation from nature, and thus between human and non-humans. Non-humans become resources to utilize rather than independent actors who have control over their own own destiny. The movement from a hunter-gatherer existence to one of domesticating animals can be seen as constituting a great challenge to human-animal relations. Wild species that might earlier have been considered ancestors or embodiments of sacredness were increasingly classified as predators on humans and their domestic livestock. Quarry, for human hunts, competitors, for space and resources, vermin, or spectacles for observation as captives or in stage fights. The more sophisticated categories and conceptions of animals, together with the expert knowledge of nature that went with them, lived in the groups that refused, sometimes down to the present day, to make use of the domestic species that um, they had access to. But people living in domesticity, Agriculturalists or herders generally look down upon people living in pre-domesticity, hunter-gatherers. These very different attitudes to animals can be seen in the livestock-raising communities of the Newer and the Sebi. I don't know where that is. Um, Where the herd animals are treated as property. The Newer 
generally, and that's N-U-E-R, generally refrain from serious hunting, seeing it as necessary only for those without cattle. With herding comes actions which hunter-gatherers would probably find deeply disrespectful to other non-human persons, such as the castration of bullocks. The Sebi are uncertain about whether or not animals dwell in the land of the spirits. In their creation myths, humans and animals are still separate rather than being interchangeable, as in many hunter-gatherer myths. The several myth of the original involvement of humans with cattle reinforces a hierarchical relationship between human and cattle, even while believing that cattle can understand words even though they cannot speak. This is very different to the experience of the hunter-gatherers who interact only with wild animals who they see as equals that deserve the respect. Even the perception of awareness that can be changed by the way in which humans interact with other animals and their surrounding ecology. Or it says even the perception of awareness can be changed by the way they interact with the ecology. Abram notes, Many indigenous people construe awareness, or mind, not as something that resides within their heads, but rather as a quality that they themselves are inside, along with the other animals and plants the mountains, and the clouds. They see themselves as part of the greater whole rather than being set apart from it. With agricultural and animal husbandry came the possibility of production of a surplus of current needs, the need for coordination with a larger number of people on such things as irrigation systems and systems of ownership over certain areas of land. Over time, groups became large and inevitably more hierarchical with elites and specialist occupations such as craftsmen, soldiers, and bureaucrats. The latter were needed to maintain the increasing scale of settlements and the elites needed a part of the food production under their control. The land became not just a means of subsistence for the masses, but also a means of wealth accumulation for the elites. For the first time, a large segment of human population was not involved directly with nature, in the production of their food and could treat it as an abstract phenomenon and was simply a source of wealth. They were freed to think about other things such as philosophy, politics, war, and the construction of huge edifices to celebrate their power and wealth. Manning proposes, proposes that the vast majority of hunter-gatherers did not voluntarily join the agricultural communities. Instead, when agriculture spread as a full-blown system of technologies, plows, wheat, cattle, cities, and priests, it did not diffuse among people but displaced them, and displaced is a euphemism. The unsustainable but growing agricultural groups encroached further on the lands of the more sustainable hunter-gatherers, with their sedentism and surplus, surplus food supporting a continual growth in their numbers, in only a few thousand years, agricultural communities has, had spread across the globe, and large, complex human societies came into being about 6,000 years ago. Over time, these increasingly complex societies rose and fell due to soil degradation, unsustainable population growth, adverse climactic change, and military defeat. Sumer, Akkadia, Babylonia, Assyria, Egypt, and the Indus Valley. The Shia and many other waxed and waned as the global human population rose and human societies became more complex. 
Through conquests facilitated by the establishment of large armies and advanced bureaucracies, religious empires came into being. The Greek, and then Roman in Europe and the Middle East. The Qin and the Qin, I'm not sure to say that, um, in China. And the Zapotec and the Mayan in Central and South America. And the Aksumite in Africa. The period between the first agricultural communities and these vast empires spanned less than 10,000 years, a moment in time compared to the evolution of the human species. The empires were ruled by elites who were far removed from day-to-day -day interactions with nature, and their demand for war and conspicuous consumption were met by the toil of the farmers that were the majority of the population, along with large numbers of slaves from conquered territories. New technologies, such as the production of iron for weapons and the construction of a large seagoing of large seagoing vessels, intensified the impact of the human population upon its supporting ecosystems. The foundries and shipbuilders of the empires stripped the forest for a large, for the huge amounts of wood that was required, as could be seen in the Mediterranean, which was heavily deforested. To the elites, it was more important to win the next battle than to worry about the ecological costs and the military power involved. If they won, they could always use the natural resources of newly annexed territories to keep their military well-equipped and supplied. The earth had become simply a resource to be used at will by the elites, rather than a supporting ecosystem full of non-human sentient creatures and spiritual places that required their respect. With the arrival of the monotheistic religions, which placed humans above nature, such beliefs were given religious support. The elite's lack of respect and empathy stretched to their treatment of the majority of their fellow humans. Slaves were nothing more than furniture that breathes, and could be disposed of in any way that suited their masters. Just above them in society were the peasants and forced laborers whose purpose in life was to provide food and labor for the privileged elite. The majority of the human population were lesser thans, who were simply a resource to be used and controlled by these elites. Any resistance to this reality was met with brutal reprisal and subjugation. The Indian caste system clearly represents the enshrinement of such differences across generations. In the city of Lagash, about 4,000 years ago, about half the crop was consumed by the cost of production, wages for workers, feed for draught animals and the like, and a quarter went to the king as royal tax, the remaining 25% accrued to the priests. The great rulers which continue to, which continue to be celebrated in history and film, including the ancient Greek philosophers, were in fact a small parasitic elite who consumed the earth's resources and the labors of the greater population for their own aggrandizement, aggrandizement and conspicuous consumption. Separated from ecological reality and the conditions under which the majority of the populace lived, the sheer extravagance of such rulers could stretch societies and ecosystems to their limits. Being so separated from everyday reality, the elites could be totally blind to impending catastrophe. In the case of the Mayan civilization, a growing upper class together with its retainers and other members of the incipient middle class would have increased economic strain on the total society. 
Malnutrition and the disease burdens included or increased among the commoner population and further decreased its working capacity. Despite these internal stresses, the Mai of the late classic period apparently mean no technological or social adaptive innovations. In fact, the Mai elite persisted in its traditional direction up to the point of collapse. Struggles between elites over who would control the surplus provided by the majority would also have consumed vast amounts of food and materials. These societies were hens in by the limits of the supporting ecosystems. Many technological strides were made to increase the efficiency and effectiveness of agriculture, such as the horse-drawn plow, but these only stretched the limits. Great civilizations and empires would grow to great heights, only to outstrip and denude the capacity of the soils to support them and fall foul uh, of climate change. The Roman civilizations and the European civilizations of the 17th century were fundamentally the same. Both were limited by the productivity of their soil and domestic animals, and both had parasitic political and religious elites who lived off the labor of the workers and the produce of the earth. The conquest of the Americas and Oceania allowed the Europeans to stretch these limits. The new lands provided the desperately needed nitrogen to replenish Europe's denuded soils, new high-yielding plants, and huge new unpopulated due to European germs and genocidal practices, areas upon which to grow food and place its surplus population. In this way, Europe escaped the Malthusian agriculture population growth trap, which has re- had resulted in repeated large-scale famines. Many notes, in Europe, prior to the annexation of the New World, the lifespan in the average European was frighteningly short, about 40 years and far shorter in some urban areas. Between A.D. 500 and 1500, there were 95 major famines in England and 75 in France, which suffered its last major famine in um, 1795. Once again, an agricultural society bought time by taking from others. The next subheading is the Enlightenment. During the Enlightenment, a cultural movement beginning in the late 17th century that placed reason and the scientific method above tradition and faith, such philosophers as Descartes, who considered that animals were mere empty automatons acting upon instinct and natural laws, took the separation of human humanity from its environment further. Only humans had both a mind and a body, with the latter being directed by the former. The advent of the scientific method supported the view that the natural world could be studied, understood, and scientifically managed, controlled by humans. Science placed symbolic representations and processing above other forms of knowledge, such as that gained by indigenous peoples who may have populated and directly experienced the same geography for many hundreds of years. Direct visceral experience and symbolic representations use very different parts of the brain and therefore create very different attitudes and decisions. The logical extension of the view that nature can be studied, understood, and managed has been shown in the field of natural resource management, where the supposedly scientific management of fisheries and forests has failed disastrously. In the case of fisheries, What were assumed to be maximum sustainable yields 
MSY, the maximum production of food from the sea on a sustained basis year after year, resulted in the collapse of fisheries. The view of nature is simply a resource to be used for the benefit of humanity is obviously in the wording of this definition. Finley and Oresks note that the concept of MSY was built upon a number of incorrect assumptions. One, that scientists were able to accurately estimate existing stock levels for the major economic fisheries. Two, that scientists could accurately recognize when stocks had reached the maximum sustainable levels. Three, that governments would act promptly to curtail fishing when those levels were reached. And four, that scientists could accurately identify the levels at which recovery was sufficient to let fishing resume and that those assumptions were not empirically based and were all subsequently shown to be incorrect. Ecosystems within which fish populations exist are highly complex, with a phenomenal level of interconnections and dependencies. This makes the possible impact of any change to a given marine ecosystem extremely difficult, if not impossible to predict. For example, when predatory fish are removed, smaller um, Herbivorous fish may increase in abundance, restructuring the entire food web and making recovery of the predatory species less likely. Overfishing of some species can also reduce marine biodiversity, which undermines the resilience of marine ecosystems and can lead to collapse of additional fish populations. The case of the North Atlantic cod fishery bears this out as a 20-year moratorium on fishing has not resulted in any meaningful recovery in the stocks of cod. The implementation of the MSY concept may have been based um, as much on politics as on science. In the case of forestry management, the ruling modern assumption was that fire suppression was the most effective way to reduce the impact of fire upon a forest. This belief has recently been called into question as the absence of smaller fires leaves more leaf litter and branches which then fuel much larger and more destructive fires. The technocratic belief that forestry management can be independent of economic, societal, or social and political imperatives and influences has also been called into question, as the underlying assumptions and power relationships of environmental management have been laid bare. Science cannot be separated from the rest of society. Management by a technocracy, a ruling group of technical experts, is as open to cultural, economic, worldview, and political influences as any other form of government, especially when decisions have major societal impacts. Humans and the human society are not purely rational, and the belief that they can be driven simply by rational decision-making is a delusion that fundamentally misunderstands human psychology and the limitations of human understanding of its surroundings. Scientists and technocrats are no less human and open to non-rational influences than the rest of humanity, no matter what they believe. Science may be the best approximation of reality that humans have developed, but it is far from perfect. A greater level of humility with respect to our nurturing ecosystems will be a core requirement for a sustainable future. Instead of such humility, there is the incredible arrogance of the technocrats who consider that humanity can geoengineer the whole of the Earth's climate system. 
Somehow, the results of previous economic growth and technological development and the increase in the level of heat-trapping gases in the atmosphere are expected to be offset by even greater feats of human engineering and technology. And I went to school for civil engineering, so I really know what this whole attitude is about. So, the next subheading is fossil fuels. The advent of fossil fuels removed human societies from the limits set by the productivity of the surrounding ecology. They were no longer limited to the amount of energy provided by the photosynthesis that converted the sun's energy into biomass. Instead, they could access millions of years' worth of photosynthesis stored in the ground and convert it and converted into the incredible energy, dense fossil fuels, coal, oil, and natural gas. With the enormous amount of energy available to them, combined with modern science and technology, humans could believe that they were set apart from nature and that they were capable of controlling and managing natural systems. Exhausted soils could be rejuvenated through fossil fuel-based fertilizers, rivers could be domesticated with huge dams, humans could fly faster than any bird, travel on land faster than any animal, and even explore other planets. They could become superhuman, with the average person in the rich world living better than kings and queens had, and being able to do things that royalty could never have dreamed of. What we have not yet understood is that this was simply a fleeting moment in our existence before our mistreatment of nature, our nurturing parent, would catch up with us. We thought that we had conquered nature, when in fact we were like amateur gamblers that mistook some early wins for exceptional ability. After just two centuries of extensive fossil fuel use, humanity has gained a scale that is overwhelming. The ability of natural systems to rejuvenate themselves and undermines the coalition of factors that support the existence of its incredible complex civilizations. Incredibly complex civilizations. The problem that faces humanity is the impact of its continued exponential compound growth, which even just a 2% growth rate, doubling the scale of humanity in only 36 years. Human ingenuity will not provide an escape route from the inevitability of this math. Now the tables are turning on humanity, but the elites and the technocrats are still high on those early wins and the wonderful beliefs that they allowed to those and they they allowed to develop as the many challenges of the existence of complex human civilization multiply due to continual miscalculation the leaders and rulers need to accept that the current civilization is a product of a lucky alignment of external factors they must accept that its destructive behavior needs to be curtailed if it is to remain in the sweet spot, which has allowed humanity to rise so high above its fellow animals. It is impossible for the Chinese, Indian, Brazilians, and others to realize their aspirations to become as well off as the current citizens of the USA or Europe without destroying the basis of human civilization. For the poor to become richer, the rich have to become poorer. That is the new reality if humanity is to continue to survive on this finite planet. Chapter 3, quote, unquote, economic growth will fix everything. I think this is probably the last chapter that I'm going to read for this part. 
The delusion that economic growth will fix everything from poverty to ecological destruction and pollution is central to the way in which modern societies are run. This attitude creates a major barrier to reaching a sustainable state for humanity. It is irrelevant to the dominant worldview that such growth endangers humanity's very survival by degrading and further exhausting the environment, and that per capita wealth above a certain, a given amount has been shown not to improve general well-being. In addition, over 200 years of such growth has entrenched many institutions and path-dependent infrastructure, presenting large inertial forces which prevent a move away from the belief in the efficacy of growth. The movement to a no-growth reality will require fundamental changes to society's belief systems and social practices. It will also require a reassessment of the viability of important parts of our path-dependent infrastructure. Such change will be strongly resisted by those who benefit from the status quo, such as the powerful and wealthy. Economic growth, especially growth that is characterized as increase in national gross national product, GNP, a measure of the size of a country's economy, does not correlate with improvements in social welfare. Even Simon Kuznets, who is credited with the development of this measure, never intended GNP to be used as a gauge of general social welfare. He noted, Distinctions must be kept in mind between quantity and quality of growth, between costs and returns, and between the short and long run. Goals for more growth should specify more growth and of what and for what. GNP can be better characterized as a measure of market-based expenditures and does not judge whether a given expenditure increases or decreases social well-being. Expenditures are to wage war are judged the same as expenditures to feed the population. It also does not take into account effects on social and ecological sustainability, such as social breakdown and soil degradation. A number of competing measures have been developed, including the Index for Sustainable Economic Welfare, the ISCW, the Genuine Progress Indicator, the GPI, and Gross National Happiness, GNH. To correct for the shortcomings of the GNP measure. These measures have had only a limited effect so far, and the GNP still reigns supreme as the hegemonic measure of societal success, as witnessed by the constant references to it and the related gross domestic product, GDP, measured by political and economic leaders and the media. A consistent pattern indicates that after a given level of GNP per head, additional growth tends not to produce increases in these alternate alternate measures. In addition, surveys asking people about their level of happiness have tended to show the same breakdown in correlation between GNP increase, increase in the improved happiness above a certain level of GNP per head. The theoretical and factual basis of mainstream economics, of which GNP is an artifact, are challenged by attempts to integrate economic and ecological considerations. These attempts see the economy as being an open system embedded within the larger Earth system. In this picture, the economy is reliant upon ecological sources for inputs, e.g. raw materials, soil, plants, and animals, oxygen. The ecological sinks for waste outputs, e.g. nitrogen runoff into rivers, carbon dioxide into the air. 
Mainstream neoclassical economics does not factor in the measurement of such things, generally treating inputs as infinite or indefinitely sustainable, and the impact of waste products as unquantifiable externalities. As long as the economy was not large in relation to the ecology, such shortcomings tended to not matter, but over the past 200 years of exponential growth, the economy has become much larger in relation to its ecology. Authors such as Georgescu, Ruegen, Dali, and Victor argue for a full integrated ecological economics or a bioeconomics, as Georgescu Rogan refers, that accepts that continued exponential growth threatens the sustainability of human society through the depletion of non renewable ecological sources and the overuse of renewable ecological sources and sinks. The most studied of the ecological sink issues is climate change caused by the heat trapping gases, predominantly carbon dioxide, but also methane and others expelled into the atmosphere as a side effect of human economic activity. As scientists have deepened their understanding of the dynamics involved, the resulting ecological changes have been to increase both in scale and rap- in, in rapidity with events tending to outstrip the models used to predict them. A number of ecological source issues have been identified, such as the depletion of non-renewable hydrocarbon fossil fuels, the long-term impact of industrialized agriculture upon food production, and the over-exploitation of fish stocks. The Limits to Growth study commissioned by the Club of Rome in 1972, captured many such constraints with the viewpoint that human society was close to exceeding the carrying capacity of the Earth, which it was judged to have done before the end of that decade. With extensive proof that incremental economic growth above a given point does not increase societal welfare, and the many arguments that such growth may directly imperil the sustainability of human society, it could be expected that calls for no growth or even degrowth would have entered general discourse and challenged the hegemony of the growth paradigm. Instead, the current focus of, of those in power is how to maintain or even to accelerate growth rather than to contemplate a post-growth paradigm. What are the factors holding back our society from embracing these new pathways, pathways to sustainability and social welfare? If a patient was to ignore such input about her survival and happiness, such resistance could be deemed pathological, a symptom of underlying psychological problems. What are those underlying issues stopping humanity from responding to such input? The exponential economic growth that has become an underlying societal assumption and an overriding imperative for government policy is a relatively recent phenomenon in the history of human society. The history of human civilization prior to the 18th century is one of repeated developments of complex studies, followed by repeated collapses of those those societies. Morris developed an index of social development and noted that only three civilizations could be identified as reaching the low 40s on his index, those of the Song Dynasty, the Roman Empire, and the modern civilization, and modern civilization. 1,000 years separate the first two, and over 1,500 years the latter two. Morris notes, If someone from Rome or Song China had been translated to 18th century London or Beijing, he or she would certainly have have had many surprises. 
yet more, in fact, much more, would have seemed familiar. Most important of all, though the visitors from the past would have noticed that although social development was moving higher than ever, the ways people were pushing it up hardly differed from how Romans and Song Chinese had pushed it up. The development of complex societies relied upon the production of a surplus food, of a surplus food and other forms of energy above that required for basic existence. This surplus allowed for specialized occupations such as artisans and soldiers and an increased level of social complexity. Such societies are an anomaly in history, having existed only in the last 6,000 years, while throughout the several millions million years that recognizable humans are known to have lived, the common political unit was the small autonomous community. The size and complexity of such societies was limited by the available biomass, predominantly food, fodder for animals, and wood, and the efficiency of the mammals, humans, horses, oxen, etc., in converting that biomass into useful energy, the reality of these limitations can be seen even in the cradle of democracy, ancient Greece, where the freedom and material comfort of a limited number of men was supported by a large cohort of non-citizens, such as slaves and serfs, whose surplus energy could be used for the benefit of a few of the few. Increased complexity can be seen as a problem-solving strategy, and additional available energy as a prerequisite. Through greater levels of differentiation, specialization, and integration, Tainter proposed that the decreasing returns of additional complexity are a fundamental limitation on societal longevity, as would be a lack of the incremental energy required to support increases in complexity and the resultant lack of ability to deal with new challenges. The use of non-renewable hydrocarbon energy sources such as coal, oil, and natural gas in the past 200 years was a fundamental break in human history that allowed human society to escape limitations on its size, complexity, and growth rate. By way of example, hunter-gatherer societies contained more, no more than a few dozen distinct social personalities where modern European consensus recognizes 10,000 to 20,000 unique occupational roles and industrial societies may contain more than 1 million different kinds of social personalities. This phenomenal increase in societal scale and complexity created changes in physical infrastructure, economic configuration, and hegemonic ideology that were highly path-dependent, constrained by previous actions and limited future options. As human societies evolved to optimize their fit with the new circumstances of greatly enhanced access to energy, this process accelerated the post-war period. As oil with the high energy density and ease of transport was increasingly exploited, the outcome of a social, socioeconomic configuration in the industrialized countries that is highly sensitive to the availability of complex interconnections between specialized subsystems, high quality energy, and continual growth, this is reinforced by a ruling ideology that assumes growth as a given and treats the accumulation of wealth and physical goods as highly desirable and socially positive. The sheer scale and complexity of modern industrial societies create many barriers to fundamental change. These changes would need to occur at differing scales and in many heterogeneous subsystems with cascading effects through the complex adaptive systems that typify modern societies. 
For example, a rise in fuel taxes in the United Kingdom in 2000 led to a blockade of fuel depots by protesting truck drivers. Within days, the UK economy was close to collapse, with supermarkets running out of food and even essential services such as hospitals at risk. Globalization has aggravated such issues by linking multiple industrial societies together and facilitating the industrial development of other societies. Complex systems, such as the global economy, can be highly resilient to some changes, but also highly reactive to others, depending upon the nature of those changes and amount of resilience in the system. A system with a greater level of variety, independence, and duplication of subsystems will tend to be more resilient. A person with two lungs and two kidneys is more resilient than a person with just one of each. A community with multiple food sources will be more resilient than when relying upon a single crop. The collapse of a single civilization may not affect another when there are no trade flows or other interactions between them. Walker et al. Um, consider that industrialized societies have been reducing their resilience through human-induced ecological degradation and the drive of econ- economic efficiency which leads to the elimination of redundant subsystems and interconnections. The impact of the latter was shown in the effects of the Japanese earthquake of 2011 and the Southeast Asian floods of the same year upon global supply chains, as highly integrated just-in-time global delivery processes were severely affected. Complex systems can switch between different equilibrium states when a threshold Condition of the current equilibrium has been breached, undergoing a rapid regime shift, as experienced by financial markets during crashes. An open question is whether or not the global human society has the level of resilience necessary to undergo the fundamental changes necessary for its long-term survival, without collapsing into a new equilibrium that exists that exhibits a much lower level of social well-being. Over the past two centuries of plentiful, high-quality energy, very large investments have been made in physical and social infrastructure, which may be either completely invalidated or greatly diminished in value by decreasing economic growth. The financial system, which underpins the functioning of the modern economy, is one of these infrastructures, because at its very core lies the assumption of exponential growth. Most financial wealth consists of claims upon future economic growth. Without growth, such wealth will be shown to be illusory illusory, and will evaporate. The value of any private corporation is dependent upon its future profit flows and the growth of these flows relative to the current period. The higher the rate of growth, the higher the company value, hence the lower price-to-earnings ratio the ratio of the value of a listed company to its current earnings. Of low-growth companies, such as utilities, compared to high-growth companies, such as new technology startups, without continued economic growth, the ability of a company to grow earnings would be severely constrained, and this realization would lead share prices to fall to reflect this new reality. The charging of interests on loans is dependent upon economic growth because the increased economic activity is required to produce the incremental cash flow required to pay back the interest. A pause in economic growth would severely impact the current financial system. The effects of such a dislocation would gently impinge upon society's ability to function 
and make required investment in sustainable alternatives. The direct effect of financial dislocation upon the real economy were shown during the 2008-2009 financial crisis when global supply chains were temporarily affected by reductions in international trade finance. Trade finance. This disruption resulted in some companies not being able to, find, to fund international trade shipments. From a systems perspective, the present financial system can be seen as a positive feedback loop, which when functioning well, drives continued growth, and when functioning badly, enhances systemic collapse. Reinforcing feedback loops are self-enhancing, leading to exponential growth or to runway collapse over, t- runaway collapse over time. They are found whenever a stock can amount to any given thing, not to be confused with financial stocks and shares, has the capacity to reinforce itself. Capital is just such a self-enhancing stock. For example, through the payment of interest, which can then be reinvested to earn more interests. The financial system contains many of the largest and most powerful corporations in the world, all strongly motivated to support continuing economic growth which underpins their continued success. The fossil fuel industry, which is dependent upon continued hydrocarbon-driven growth, also has many of the largest corporations among its ranks. An example is ExxonMobil, which has annual revenues greater than the GDP of most countries in the world. The ability of such huge corporations to function effectively is dependent upon the transportation and communication systems made possible by fossil fuel energy. Such corporations can strongly oppose any initiatives to reduce growth and or dependence on fossil fuels by directing media groups through advertising um, through advertising spent decisions, funding political organizations in many countries with little or no limits in the United States after the Citizens United Supreme Court ruling, and hiring lobbyists to directly affect legislation. Authors such as Oreskes and and Hogan and Littlemore have documented many of the activities used to forestall actions which may be in the public good, but which would limit corporate profit and freedom of action. These activities use many of the advanced socio-psychological techniques developed in the early 20th century by figures such as Edward Bernays. I highly recommend watching this documentary. You can find it, I think it's like three hours long on YouTube. It's called the Century of the Self, and it talks a lot about Edward Bernays, and it's a really excellent documentary. So back to the reading. The techniques create the consumer culture required to drive the increasing levels of demand needed in an age of ever-increasing material production facilitated by fossil fuel energy and to manufacture consent as a method of control, social control. National security strategy and the ability of a country to affect the policies of other countries for its benefit relies greatly upon relative economic size with respect to both hard power, i.e. military threats and actual interventions, and soft power, diplomatic, economic sanctions and incentives, etc. The ability to field a significant military presence is dependent upon the ability to generate a large economic surplus which can be used to support such non-productive resources. The respective power positions of countries are heavily linked to their relative economic growth over time, as noted by Kennedy. 
The ability to project military power is also dependent upon liquid fossil fuels in for the transport and operation of personal and military equipment. With the post-World War II proliferation of nuclear weapons limiting the viability of direct military intervention and the recent recreation of a multipolar world, i.e. USA, China, and the resurgent Russia, the soft levers of power have come to the fore. Thus, both the military and political elites will, have, will be heavily committed to continued economic growth. They will see unilateral degrowth as unilateral disarmament and an acceptance of less power relative to other countries. The president of the highly influential Council of Foreign Relations, an elite group in the United States that focuses on foreign policy, has publicly stated the importance of economic power to national security. Continued access to fossil fuel resources is a central part of the influential project for the New, America, New American Century, PNAC, a U.S. think tank focused on promoting quote-unquote American global leadership, which has influential members in the Bush administration, as well as the plans of the well-connected Brzezinski, <laughs> regarded as one of the main foreign policy advisors to President Obama. The military have shown some openness to accepting the impact of climate change and fossil fuel depletion as they act assess future possible threats which take into account scientific opinion in these areas. Insurance corporations provide another avenue through which elite opinion may be diversifying as they assess the effects of climate change upon their future claims and corporate viability, although the U.S.-based insurance companies seem to be seriously lagging behind their counterparts in other countries. It may be remembered, though, that all these efforts are within the paradigm of continued economic growth. The insurance company's huge investment portfolios held to meet future claims would be undermined by the end of economic growth. The ideological infrastructure has been fundamentally affected by the continued exponential growth over the past two centuries. An underlying belief in the efficacy of continued economic growth, together with the near-absolute confidence in human ingenuity and technology to overcome any obstacles, pervade the dominant capitalist and socialist belief systems. Caton has likened the belief in technology to a cargo cult, the belief that various ritualistic acts will deliver material wealth developed by some developed by some Pacific Islanders after their first contact with industrialized societies and noted that modern technological advancement depends heavily upon the energy surplus provided by fossil fuels. While such advances developed new and more efficient ways to use fossil fuel energy, they have not developed viable long-term replacements for fossil fuels. Greer notes the dependence that the dependence of renewable technologies on fossil fuel subsidy on a fossil fuel subsidy with the example of a solar cell which requires large doses of diesel fuel to mine the raw materials and then ship them to the factory larger doses of natural gas or coal to generate the electricity to turn raw materials into a cell to this can be added the fossil fuels need to transport the finished cells and to install them, the hegemonic economic paradigm of the capitalist economics, neoclassical economics, assumes limitless or indefinitely substitutable natural resources.
This was consistent with the reality for the greater part of the last 200 years of exponential growth, and as the human economy was not large enough to appreciate impact on ecology. The momentum of exponential growth has now grown the human economy to a scale where it is having a major impact upon its ecology, but the hegemonic economic paradigm has not caught up with reality. Areas of research such as ecological economics and bioeconomics, which strive to incorporate the economy within its surrounding society and natural environment, are still very much on the fringe of economics with little or no effect on the mainstream. The inability of scientific communities to change paradigms even in the face of overwhelming evidence was noted by Kuhn. With the eventual change in many cases being dependent upon the turnover of leaders in the respective discipline. With economists being so central to society societal decision-making processes, this provides a major impediment to change. Cognitive dissonance also blocks change, as individuals are driven to reject information that conflicts with their own beliefs or those of the groups to which they belong. A number of studies have indicated the role of cognitive dissidence in the rejection of the evidence for climate change. Industrialized human society is a complex system that is developed through adaptation to the seemingly endless amounts of high-quality fossil fuel energy. Two centuries of such adaptation have created a society that dovetails with its current ecological niche. Unfortunately, it has developed less resilience to changing ecological circumstances and has embedded inertial tendencies. The example of a drug ad- of a drug addict comes to mind. He knows that continued use of drugs will kill him, but is unable to save himself. Part of his body craves the drugs. The process of withdrawal is both emotionally and physically painful. His drug-damaged body may also not be able to survive the physical stresses of the withdrawal process. The continued drug use, or in the case of society, fossil fuel use, use and focus on economic growth, is a pathological but also a very understandable response. Many organizations have focused on local initiatives in the face of such societal-level inertia and resistance as with the Transition Town movement pioneered by Rob Hopkins, but they they risk remaining relatively marginalized with little effect on the direction of society. Such local initiatives could be overwhelmed by wider societal problems as ecologically driven crises intensify, because they are dependent on society and its ecology. Another reaction, as with David King, the former United Kingdom chief scientific advisor, is that real change will not happen until the ecologically driven negative effects are obvious and large enough to overcome societal resistance. Given the delayed feedbacks inherent in resource depletion and ecological degradation, together with the nonlinear nature of complex systems such as the global ecology, it may be too late by then. We need to concentrate on overcoming the fundamental societal barriers to change and to create a competing positive discourse for a society that currently has an inability to construct a narrative that links to reality. So next time I get back to reading this, in the next episode, I'll read the chapter, chapter four, The Rich and the Gilded Cage.